We are continuing this morning our series in Mark, uh, which Tammy, I believe, kicked off for us last week. Uh, the series is called The King and His Cross. And last week, what we were talking about was John the Baptist coming and preparing the way for Jesus. Um, and what we're doing today is we're jumping forward a little bit in the story. We're still going to be in Mark chapter 1, but basically... What's happened in between? Jesus has been in the desert for 40 days in the wilderness. He's come back into Galilee. He's called his first disciples. And this is the point we're picking up the story. So we're going to read from Mark 1, verse 21. And as you can see from the slide, I've named today Horite of the... So actually, what I should say (laughs) is the authority of the king. But uh, obviously, I haven't figured out how to do slides properly. So that's my fault. (laughs) But never mind. We're going to read from Mark 1. And it's verse 21. Actually, before we do that, does anyone need a Bible? We should have a Bible monitor. How about... Oh, Caitlin, you shouldn't have looked at me. Caitlin, okay, let's give her a huge cheer. Woo! Fantastic. If you need a Bible, please put your hand in the air. Caitlin will deliver it to you. And if you don't have one at home, this is our free gift to you. We would love you to take it home. Amazing. And we have youth Bibles as well, if there's any youth here who need a Bible as well. Okay. So Mark 1, verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after the sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who were ill and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Amen. Brilliant. So for the people in our passage that we're reading about today, they are encountering Jesus for the first time. They are experiencing his authority. And today we're asking the question, what are the hallmarks of Jesus' authority? What are the distinguishing features that set it apart from the authority of anyone else? And what does this authority mean for us today? So firstly, Jesus' authority is higher than ours. When I was in secondary school, uh, initially I was not a fan of history at all. It was my least favorite subject. One of those subjects that just felt really dry and really dusty. And we went through a string of supply teachers who just did the kind of classic thing of just reading from the textbook. It wasn't engaging at all. And the whole class just always switched off. History was just the worst. And it wasn't until I got to year nine, which I think is like S3, S4 kind of age, where everything changed. We got a new teacher called Mr. Swarick. And Mr. Swarick was maybe like 40 years old, Eastern European guy, really tiny, you know, not much to look at, you might think. But when it came to teaching, 
no one could touch him, right? Mr. Swarick was just in another league. There was something about him. He was one of those teachers. I don't know if you've ever had a teacher like this. There's just that, just a bit scary. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, you, you kind of like them, but at the same time, you're like, ooh, okay, right? You know, he had this thing where he was just like totally in control. He was incredibly intelligent. He rarely raised his voice, but even so, he had complete control over whatever was happening in the classroom. There was this fear and awe around him wherever he went. And even the guys who were notorious for like stepping out of line, like they wouldn't put a foot wrong around him, around Mr. Swarick. So he had this really commanding presence. And not only that, he was passionate about history in a way I've never seen before. He had us eaten out of the palm of his hands. So for pretty much everyone, history went from their worst subject to their favorite subject. No one wanted to miss a class because this was a guy who lived and breathed his subject. And he made you excited to learn more. So he had this air of authority. And when you stepped into his class, what he said went. And you wanted to learn as much as you could. And I remember really clearly thinking at that age that I was in the company of somebody who really knew what he was doing, who knew what he was about, and he had an authority that none of the other teachers could match. He was a million miles away from them. And here in our passage, King Jesus, he arrives in the town. And the thing that the people comment on, the thing that blows them away more than anything, is Jesus' authority. That's what they say twice. It's like this authority is like nothing we've ever experienced before. And as Jesus begins to speak, they experience the distinctiveness of him compared to the other religious leaders who would have taught in the synagogue. It's not just about Jesus being a greater teacher, a greater speaker or communicator, but the way he speaks and what he says is fundamentally different from all the other teachers of the law around him. He's bringing scripture alive. You know what the norm would be in those days is that a rabbi, someone who was teaching, what they would do is when they were teaching, they would quote other rabbis from the past. They would study, they would research, and they would look at all these great thinkers and great, you know, people who had, you know, poured over scripture and pulled out truths from it, and they would have all these ideas, and then these rabbis would come and just quote all these people one after another. And so this teaching would just consist of that, all these quotes from other people. Jesus walks into the synagogue, he stands up to speak, and he quotes no one. No one. He speaks on the authority, not of another rabbi, but of his own authority. And the people are like, like minds are absolutely blown by this. They can't believe it. An example of what this might look like, in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, You have heard the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus says, I say, love your enemies. So where the rabbis were basing their teaching on the scholars and thinkers of the past and on years of tradition around the law, Jesus spoke on his own authority. He spoke like nobody else had ever experienced. You know, I love that Jesus does this. His authority is greater than anyone else's. It's greater than man's. All of us live with the fact that we are under human authority, right? In some way or another. It's not necessarily a negative. It's a normal thing. We see it throughout the Bible that our response as Christians is not to resist it. Romans says, as Christians, we're supposed to obey those in government who rule over us. Exodus talks about, you know, honor your father and mother. And then you've got First Peter, submit to elders. Ephesians, obey your earthly masters. Human authority is not always in essence, a negative thing, okay? We know we need it at one level or another for society to actually function, 
we elect people who have authority. We're commanded to have this healthy respect for it in its right place. But there are moments when human authority goes a bit wrong, isn't there? There's moments where we're oppressed, where we're put under authority that isn't right, where it's forced on us in a way that it's not supposed to. And you know what? In those moments where we feel under pressure, we have to remind ourselves that there is a greater authority than that of man, that it's Jesus. So I don't know what that looks like, whether that's a boss who's putting you know, a lot of pressure on us at work, whether that's a decision in parliament that we fundamentally disagree with, whether it's a teacher that you know, we feel like just treats us unfairly. We remember in those moments that Jesus' authority is higher than the authority of anyone else that we can be under. It's really important to remember And we can actually live with a skewed perspective of human authority and how important it is. That it can be for us the be-all and end-all. You know, that the opinions and words of other people, we can hold them higher than God. You know, that can happen if we're prone to be a people-pleaser. And I can be guilty of that at times. Something I need to watch. Where we fall into the trap of being more concerned of what other people would think about us than what God would think about us. And we put their authority higher than his in our hearts. Or sometimes other people can wrongly put authority over us and speak things to us, whether they mean to or not, saying things like, you'll never amount to anything. You're so stupid. Words like that can stick with us, and we can choose to give them weight and give them authority over us. And it's such, it's such a ridiculous thing when you actually like think about how, how much higher God's authority is. I was trying to think about what it was like, and I think it's a little bit like this. Hands up if you're in school right now. Not right now, you're obviously not in school, but yeah. Okay, so a few of us are in school, and for those of us who aren't, I want you to imagine that you're in school. Imagine that you have an essay to write, okay? And it's a really tough essay, and you've been writing it, and then you've finished. You're not sure how well you've done. You're a little bit nervous about it, and it comes time to hand it in to the teacher. And then I want you to imagine that as you're going to hand it to the teacher, somebody from your class snatches it out of your hand and then they get out their glasses and a red pen and they start marking your work. You're like, whoa, what's going on here? And you look and they're crossing out words, they're writing notes in the margin and at the end they write 20% vpur, see me after class. Would you take that? Would you be like, yep, fair enough, I guess that's a fair assessment of my work? Of course you wouldn't. You'd be ridiculous to do that. You would never take that home and be like, sorry mum and dad, I got 20%. That's crazy. Of course you wouldn't do that. And in the same way, We can't let other people have authority over us. Why would we ever let man have authority over us, over God's authority? Why would we treat it as more important, either through us people-pleasing or wrongly taking on board the words of others? And we can even include in this thinking what we say about ourselves. You know, the red marks that we would write on our own page. Our authority is nowhere near as high as God's authority. Do you know what? It's not the words of others or our own words that have to have that importance. It's God's words. It's the Father's words that we want to hear. It's his well done that we need. It means that we don't need to people please. We don't need to worry what others think about us. We want to hear the Father's voice to tell us who we are. To tell us what he's doing in us. What are the areas of sin that needs pruned? What's the faith adventure that he wants to take us on next? We need to hear his voice above all others. And I think there's something in us, in here for us, with this picture of Jesus standing in the synagogue, 
the heart of the community, the very center of that community, and having this platform to speak with authority. And what happens as a result of that? It's absolute carnage, isn't it? Everyone's minds are blown. Stuff starts happening. And I think that's a picture of what happens when we allow Jesus the right place in our life to speak with authority over us to speak his words of love and affirmation and to challenge us. Holy carnage happens. When we allow Jesus to do that, it's like our hearts are unraveled. And so I guess I want to ask, what are the words that we need to let go of? What are the things that maybe others have said or we have said that we've allowed to have weight in our lives that have taken the place of God's words? So the authority of the king it's higher than ours. Secondly, his authority defeats evil. Um, hands up if you're into boxing. Uh, whoa, okay, a few. So I warned uh, the uh, welcome team beforehand to take note of put their hands up because it's not a very Christian sport. So uh, you'll be getting a, a little meeting with Tammy and Brian afterwards. That's just a joke. Uh, <laughs> I, know, I know next to nothing about boxing, okay? But however, there was three weeks ago, there was a fight that people were saying was going to be one of the biggest fights in boxing history. The promo lasted months and months. It was going to be, you know, it was watched by millions of people all across the globe. I think from like ticket sales and online viewings, it took something like $800 million. Like it was a massive deal. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, this was the fight between Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor. And the reason this was such a big deal was that McGregor, who is one of the most successful mixed martial arts fighters, stay with me, uh, challenged Mayweather, who is considered one of the greatest boxers of all time by a lot of people. He had a record of like 49 you know, undefeated professional matches, which apparently is very good. Sounds good. I know nothing. But McGregor, who has not trained as a boxer, was challenging this guy who is considered to be one of the best in the world absolutely crazy. It's a very David and Goliath moment. And the vast majority of fans and commentators were saying, there's no way that this guy can beat Mayweather. It's just never going to happen. And normally, this is where us as good Scots, we would root for the little guy and we'd be like, come on, you can do it. And you'll like really get behind him. But the thing was, anytime McGregor went near a microphone and like did the whole like smack talk thing, the stuff that came out of his mouth was just ridiculous. Like he would say say the like weirdest stuff. He said things like, just really cocky. I'm just simply the best fighter, and that's it. I should <laughs> I should create my own belt. I am in myself my own belt. It doesn't matter if it's featherweight, lightweight, welterweight. It's the McGregor belt. That's it. I'm fighting for my own belt. <laughs> He really wanted a belt. He will be unconscious within four rounds. The power and ferociousness that I have, he's never experienced it before. I don't fear him. And then the last bit that I really like, he says, he's got little legs and little hands. I'm going to knock him out, mark my words, which is a great insult. Little legs and little hands. And what? And beyond what he said on the, on the microphone, he had a local artist come into his gym in Dublin and depict a huge mural of him knocking out Floyd Mayweather with the words underneath saying, underneath saying good night, Floyd. Like, it's just ridiculous. This guy was so cocky. And what happened? He lost. Of course he lost. And so I don't know what's happened to that mural. It's a little bit awkward, isn't it? Like, but commentator said he put up a good fight and all that, but the reality was he was never going to beat this guy. Not in a million years. He didn't stand a chance. Despite all of his talk, It was a huge mismatch. He was completely out of his depth. And of course, Mayweather won. 
And there's another mismatch in our passage where Jesus confronts the enemy and there's absolutely no contest. Now, before I go any further, I'm not saying that one of these boxers represents good and the other represents evil because that's, you know, that's not the point I'm trying to make. But what I'm saying is this was a contest that was only ever going to go one way. So what's the context we're talking about in our passage? Jesus is speaking in the synagogue and there is immediate opposition from the enemy to what Jesus is doing. A man with a demon shouts out from the crowd. And what's interesting here is what he says. He says, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And that might not jump out to us as particularly noteworthy. But actually, numerous commentators are saying that the reason that he said that was that at the time, the thought was, if you were opposing like a spirit, you gained power and control over the other spirit that you were opposing by naming them, by identifying them and saying their name. And the idea was that if you kind of knew the name of that spirit and you said it, you would kind of gain the upper hand. You would gain control in that situation. And that seems what that's, seems like that's what that spirit is trying to do to Jesus. So you picture the scene. Jesus has started his ministry. This is the first time in Mark he's recorded speaking publicly. He's a visiting speaker to this place. He's not well known at all. And then out of nowhere, this demon says, Jesus of Nazareth, and names him. I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And this is something that no one knew. You know, his disciples didn't know it at this point. Jesus hadn't told anyone that he was the Messiah. And this demonic presence just names Jesus. And for the crowd there, you might think, oh man, Jesus is in trouble. Like, this this demon has named him exactly as he is. Like, you know, what's he going to do? And you might expect that Jesus would then in turn go, I know, demon of nonsense or whatever it was called. Like, you know, you, you, you'd expect Jesus might like start to name the demon. But no, he doesn't. He doesn't do anything like that. Jesus just says, be quiet, come out of him. In other words, shut up and get out. It's like it's a knockout moment, isn't it? It's this moment where it's like Jesus is in complete control. You know, the demon is saying these words to try and control his opponent. A bit like the smack talk from the boxers trying to intimidate. Jesus doesn't bother with any of that. He dismisses the demon, sends it packing, and shows that he not only has all authority, but he has all power as well. Amazing. Isn't that great? Isn't that great that God opposes Satan and he can squash him at every turn? That darkness can never overcome the light. The evil spirit has to go. Because Jesus' authority is greater and his power is unmatchable, unbeatable, no contest. Jeannie Morgan um, has written some amazing books. She's a friend of our church, uh, books about inner healing and um, prayer ministry. And she kind of really helpfully talks about power and authority and the difference between them because they might just sound like similar words. But the way that she um, explains it, which is really helpful... Um, you know what? I've actually mixed up my notes. Hmm. Maybe you won't find out what she said. <laughs> Just leave you all hanging. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was there all along. Okay. So what she says, what she says about power and authority, she explains it in a really clever way. She says that if you see a policeman with a uniform, you instantly know that that policeman has authority and the uniform communicates that. And a policeman can walk up to oncoming traffic and say, stop in the name of the law. The policeman has the authority to do that in that situation, but the policeman has no power to stop that car. That car could still keep coming and knock that policeman flat. The policeman can't actually stop it. Or you have a prison officer who has the keys to all the cells in the jail. 
Now, that prison officer has the power to release the prisoners, but he doesn't have the authority to do it without the say-so of the judge. And so there's this distinction between power and authority. And do you know what, guys? Jesus has both. Jesus has both of these things in unlimited measure, which is incredible. Nothing the enemy can throw at him can stand in his way. And I just want to say really quickly, as we're talking about demons and Satan and the kingdom of darkness, that can make us feel uncomfortable. That can be confusing to us. And there's a couple of mistakes we can make as Christians. One is that we can become overly fascinated with this stuff and think that it's, um, you know, really interesting and dig into it. And that's a mistake. We don't want to do that. And the other thing is that we can completely reject it and say that it's not true. And we can think, oh, we'll look back at those times. Maybe there was some mental health issues going on in these scenarios or, you know, epilepsy when they're shaking, all that kind of stuff. You know, and just try and explain it away and say, no, Satan doesn't work like that. He's, is he even real? But that's a mistake to make because actually by saying that the enemy isn't real and that he doesn't have, you know, sway in this world leaves us open to him influencing us. And that's not what we want to do. As a church, we're really, you know, we believe that the enemy is real. And we believe that he opposes us and he opposes the kingdom of God. But we also believe that God has defeated him and that he holds ultimate power. And we don't need to be afraid of that. But what I think is interesting actually about this evil spirit is that the guy, you know, who, who shouts out, he's not in the middle of the wilderness. He's not in the middle of the street. He's in the middle of the place of worship. He's in the synagogue. And in that moment, that's where the, the, the demon comes out. Um, which is which is great in one sense, but then it just kind of raises the question: like, man, going to church—that's not an automatic kind of like protection, you know. Being a Christian and you know giving your life to Jesus doesn't mean that the enemy can't influence us. We can't just like, assume that oh, it's all fine. But actually, it just kind of raises the question of like, for us, what's going on in our hearts? We need to be careful that that just going to church isn't a protection against that stuff. I've heard it described as we can have landing pads in our lives where we have maybe patterns of sin where it's just an invitation for the enemy to come in and have his way. You know, if we struggle with lust, you know, if, if pornography gets a hold of us, that, that's an invitation for the enemy to come in with a landing pad and wreck our relationships, wreck our marriage, or wreck the way that we per, like perceive the opposite sex. Or, you know, if it's lying, you know, that's a landing pad for the enemy to come in and then erode our relationships around us. You know, we need to be really careful that we don't just, you know, disregard this stuff and be like, oh, it's fine, you know, Jesus is with me. And he is, absolutely. But the enemy is there as well. And he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And it's up to us as followers of Jesus to stand against him, resist him, come to God and be like, God, save me. And he will. He'll knock him out every time. There's a, an amazing story from a guy called Smith Wigglesworth. A lot of you have probably heard of him. A preacher. Uh, from the last century who saw droves of people healed and saved and saw miracles happen all the time. And you might know this story. One night when he was asleep, he'd have these horrendous, frightening dreams. And he awoke with the feeling that there was a demonic presence in the room. And he looked to the bottom of his bed to see manifest there was Satan himself. And Smith Wigglesworth said, oh, it's only you. And turned over and went to sleep, which is ridiculous, isn't it? Absolutely ridiculous. But the point of that being, the enemy is defeated. It's like he's a lion, but he's a caged lion. And it's not up to us to like go and play by the bars and like stick our hand in. God has defeated him. We don't need to fear him, but we need to be aware of him. Okay, so the authority of the king is greater than ours. It defeats evil. And just a quick point to finish. 
What time should I finish, by the way? Because I normally start at 10 o'clock and I'm really confused. Quarter two. Awesome. Okay. He restores others. I've been reading uh, very recently about David Livingston, who lived about 150 years ago. He was a pioneer, medical missionary, and explorer, and was one of the most popular uh, British heroes of his time. Um, If you haven't heard about him, he's an incredible guy, definitely worth reading about. But after training in medicine and theology, he moved to Africa at the age of 28, and he spent nearly all of the next 32 years of his life in Africa. He did and saw some incredible things in his time there, but what was most impactful in his life was him witnessing the brutality of the African slave trade. You know, and he, he then decided to campaign tirelessly for at the end of his life to see the end of slavery. And in his time, he saw thousands of men, women, and children set free, which is incredible. And the whole time facing really fierce opposition from slavers around the continent. But he was well known for his exploration, as I said, of Africa. He even discovered uh, Victoria Falls. He went to places that had never uh, been inhabited by Europeans before, which is incredible. But he took the gospel with him wherever he went. But as he discovered more and more uncharted regions, his fame grew. And as his fame grew, what he chose to do was use his increased influence with those in power back home in the UK to continue his fight against slavery. He believed that if he could find the sources of the River Nile, which hadn't been discovered at that point, then his fame would be so big that he could use his influence to end the East African slave trade once and for all. That's really cool, isn't it? He once told a friend, the Nile sources are valuable only as a means of opening my mouth with power among men. It is this power which I hope to remedy an immense evil. I think that's great. So for years and years he searched, and although he came close, he never found the source of the Nile. However, in the year that he died... After decades of campaigning, the British government responded to a letter he wrote and finally managed to end the slave trade in East Africa. In this place where it was the epicenter of the slave trade, it was the last legal slave market in a place called Zanzibar, which had sold hundreds and thousands of of people over the years. It was finally, finally closed forever, which is amazing. David Livingston could have used his popularity, his fame, and his authority to retire to a life of luxury, you know, as a world-famous explorer and hosted dinner parties and tell everyone about his amazing travels, and no one would have judged him for it, I'm sure. But instead, he used any and all authority and power he had to combat slavery, and ultimately he gave his life to see it happen. And we see here the primary use of Jesus' power and authority is for the benefit of other people, is to restore them, is to set captives free. He doesn't use his power and his authority for his own gain or fame, but he does it to establish the kingdom of God by setting people free who are in slavery to sickness and under demonic oppression. The crowd are baffled by this. They're amazed by this. They can't believe it because that's not how authority works. You know, for them, those who are in power over them, those who are in authority over them, want to gain more control over the people, or they want to expand their empire, or they want to just gain more stuff for themselves. But this is someone who has more authority and more power than any of these rulers put together, and yet he is using all of it to set captives free. That's not normal. That's the kingdom of God. There's something different here. It's incredible. 
And the good news about this spreads, and everyone who is sick or is demon-possessed comes to see him. They clamber to see Jesus, and he sets them free. He brings freedom to every single one of them exactly where they need it. And you know the slave market I was talking about that had closed down? If you go to Zanzibar today, if you go to Stone Town where it's situated, you won't find the slave market. You'll find a church in that place. You'll find a massive church that was built on top of that site. And the exact same platform that used to display people as they were being auctioned off, you know, right where the whipping post was, is now where the altar sits. And you see this spot that had literally been, you know, this point of centuries of oppression and pain and cruelty inflicted upon countless people is now the focal point of worship in that area. How good is that? How good is that? Because that is what God does. He restores and he redeems and it leads us to worship him. And that's what happens in our passage as well. What does, what does Peter's mother-in-law do in response to being healed? She serves Jesus. She waits on him as an act of worship. Jesus comes to us today in the same way that David Livingston came to Zanzibar. He meets us at the very place of slavery in our lives. He meets us at the very point of shame, the very place where darkness would hold us captive. And he uses his authority and his power to bring us freedom. Where does that land for you today? Is there an area in your heart where you need to see to Jesus, save me, free me, Lord? You know, what we were talking about chains earlier in the service, and we were praying about that. Like, I believe that for some people that really will be the case, that it's like, we need freedom. Jesus, will you come? Will you, will you move? Is there an area, area of sin? Is there sickness? Is there struggle? Is there something in your life that you need to be free of? Jesus has the keys. He has the power and the authority. And finally, not only does Jesus come with authority and power to bring freedom, to restore others, but he actually sends us out to do the same. Flipping heck. Really? He does. At the end of Matthew in the Great Commission, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. <laughs> Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. I'm, send, I'm sending you out. I'm sending you out to be freedom to people who need it. And that's terrifying. That's scary because we look at ourselves and we think, how, God? How? What does he say at the end? I will be with you. I will be with you. I am always with you, even to the end of the age. We get to continue the work of Jesus. We have the privilege of seeing people brought into freedom and new life. When we hear that call, there can be a bit of a kind of moment for us. But we don't need to be afraid because he's with us. The one with all the authority and power. And even when we look at our lives and we know that we can't do it, he says to us, I know. I know you can't, but I'm with you. His spirit lives in us. We carry the authority and power of the king, which is higher than ours, which defeats evil, and which brings freedom to the captives. Why don't we stand?